Hello. Today is January the 1st, 2019, and this is Drive Time. This is the podcast where I'm driving either to or from work, and we talk about random subjects. Now, today's topic is pretty much a brand new year, right? I mean, that I think most people will cover the beginning of a new year, and um, I'm, I'm excited about 2020. 2019, we had some good things happen. We had some things uh, unexpected. We had, um, as a recap kind of thing, I mean... Uh, there's some milestones when it comes to uh, joining uh, companies. There's milestones when it comes to leaving companies. There's uh, personal milestones when it comes to the birth of my child or children. Um, you know, and it, I was, Christmas had just passed uh, not too long ago, and I was remarking to my wife, I was telling her, hey, you know, our, our oldest son is five at the time, and I was like, you know, he's never going to be five years old. You know, he's never going to be five years old again after. You know, he's never going to be five years old at Christmas again. You know, this is it. This is this is it. <laughs> it's not like you, you blow your load or, you know, it's, it's over. But uh, things keep moving on. And, and this one moment in time is, is gone. And, um, you know, for those 24 hours on Christmas Day, that was Christmas Day. You know, the, the anticipation leading up to it, which was Christmas Eve, um, it, it's, all, it's all the same. Now, here's the thing. I was horribly sick. Uh, for a week leading into Christmas and uh, probably four four days after. So about the 29th to 30th was when I started feeling um, adequate enough to even start speaking again. Um, it was it was very, very, very difficult to, um, to do very many functions, but um, that's where that remark came from, the fact that I'd been feeling horribly sick, the fact that I had been coughing and running a fever and I just felt weak and my wife thought it was a flu, tested negative. Um, there's a lot of things that happened and, you know, somewhere in there I just kind of had like an, you know, an epiphany and said, hey, you know, my oldest son's name's Thomas. Thomas is never going to be five years old at Christmas again. So, you know, I told myself, hey, you've got to pick up your bootstraps. You've got to make this thing special. And you have to make this thing a memory. You don't have to, by all means. Uh, choose to make things special. Choose to be there with your kids. Choose to sing the Christmas songs in church, you know, as if, you know, it's your favorite song in the world. You know, choose to have those experiences and give that presentation to your children. Because one of these days, they might remember it, and you want them to remember it positively. You know, and again, it goes back to that exception or expectation versus reality. Um, you know, the expectation is relatively high, so the reality needs to be higher. Now, I'm not saying, you know, you go one up and do all kinds of crazy stuff. I'm just simply saying that in my son's uh, expectation building up to Christmas, it was it was at a seven. He was hyped. He was excited. And if daddy's sick and he can't bring the energy and he can't bring the excitement he can't make Christmas feel like Christmas I'm failing as a parent and um, you know it's it's those things stick with me you know he may not remember his five year old Christmas but I will you know he may not he don't remember his first second third fourth fifth he might I mean he might remember fifth now because he's got a pretty strong memory but the first four vague very I mean, if anything he will was a tree. It's like, all right. You know, the house that we're living in now where he's crystallizing his first um, memories, um, 
he'll remember that house. He won't remember every detail. He won't remember every floorboard. He won't remember every nail on the wall, the coat, you know, the paint, the coat of, uh, of, of gloss on the, on the banister. He's not going to remember those things, but I will because I'm a 30-something-year-old man, and, you know, the North remembers. <laughs> anyway, um, I, I uh, every year I watch uh, It's a Wonderful Life. It's the, the Jimmy Stewart movie where he... Uh, and of course, every uh, genre has riffed off of the premise of this movie, which essentially is George Bailey is a. If you've never seen the movie, I'm gonna give you a synopsis of the movie. That way, you, you're kind of caught up with, uh, you know, you've probably seen a movie or a show or anything that takes the same premise and just modernizes it. You know, same message, same everything. So George Bailey is a, uh, a young man, and the, the movie starts off with two angels talking to each other. And they're talking about how George Bailey is trying to kill himself. And the majority of the movie, I want to say probably about three-fourths of the movie, damn near 70%, um, is a recap of all the events leading up to George Bailey's decision to kill himself um, by jumping off a bridge into icy cold water. Um, So, throughout the course of George Bailey's life, he has... Uh, affected people, and he's never known his effect. He's never known his worth uh, uh, on other individuals. He's always taken a very um, selfish point of view, quite frankly, if you look at it from that perspective, of his life. And he had high ambitions, high demands. He wanted to do so many things in his life and go different places, but he always seems to be stuck in his two-bit town, um, you know, so his dad runs a bailing and bonds company, which is pretty much like a loan office. Um, you know, hands out loans, gets money off of it. His dad's no businessman, but he has a heart for people. Um, George picks up that heart for people begrudgingly through a very cynical uh, portrayal of, of characterization by Jimmy Stewart. And, you know, Jimmy Stewart is, is awesome by, by far, but um, it's just the, the, the way he plays the character is very, is very real because it, it does reminisce with somebody who is, you know, and it's stuck in a dead-end job or a job that they never wanted or doing something that they didn't choose and they're miserable in that. But inside of that job, there is a purpose. There is a promise. And you do see George's natural ability to help people, his natural ability to make good or better business sense than his father did. Um, there's a rival. His name is Potter. Uh, he is the man who pretty much owns everything but the bail, uh, bailing and bonds, the Bailey uh, Bonding Company. And uh, by his way, so he's the only guy that can oppose Potter uh, in this story. In this story, because um, later on, when uh, the angel kind of grants him a wish, we'll talk about that here in a second. But uh, fast forwarding, George goes through his life. He saves his kid brother uh, when the kid brother was about eight. Um, he's fell into some ice where they're playing kind of ice hockey slash, you know, whatever. Um, and the, he saves his brother's life, and um, and uh, you know because of his actions his ear got infected and he ended up losing hearing in one ear so um, that actually saves him from going to war later on his little brother ends up and in, in much older becomes a, a war hero he's decorated with the um, I believe it's the Medal of Honor Congressional Medal of Honor um, because he saved he shot down two planes that were going to blow up essentially a transport of, of soldiers and um, you know, he's, he's a war hero essentially but he 
wouldn't be in that position to do that if Georgia had saved his life when he was eight years old. So again, little ripples of little ripples uh, turn into large affecting things uh, down down the course of, of I guess this history. Um, so George goes through uh, his life, and uh, there's a young girl. Her name is um, Mary. Ends up being his wife later on. They've known each other since children, and she's been smitten with him the whole time. In this relationship, it seems like George Bailey um, likes Mary. Um, he ends up obviously loving her. They have three beautiful children at the end of the movie, and, and that plays a part into his decision on a, on a lot of things. But, um, it seems like she wanted the relationship. She wanted him, and she would do a lot more to get him than he would at the time for her. He was a man of ambition, and he wanted to do what he wanted to do in his part right before they get married. He says, I want to do what I want to do, Mary. I want I want to, to go and leave. And, and he's frustrated with his life and the course that it's taken uh, in that part. But he finds solace in a partner, uh, which is Mary, um, which she's very bookish, just like he is. He's very, very bookish, very adventurous. And, uh, it's, it's just funny to me how <laughs> it's funny to me how she wanted the relationship more, but she's the stronger part of the marriage. She's the strongest one in the show. One of the strongest ones in the show. She's the one who has the most moral sense. She's the one that has um, her head not necessarily in the clouds like George. But there's a part later on where the business gets going after he marries uh, his, his sweetheart Mary. Um, that one of the friends from his childhood is commenting how George is always making speeches and stuff like that. He always wants to talk. But it cuts to Mary, who is doing all the talking and doing all the stuff. George is standing in the back, like, kind of in her shadow. And rightfully so. She Mary's an amazing character. She's the, one of the best parts about It's a Wonderful Life because it shows uh, her support and her commitment to his ambition, his dreams, and who he is. Um, but anyway, we're digressing into that personal part of the relationship. But as a child, she was very smitten with him, and she, and she really uh, shown the affection all the way through the, through the career or his, his life. Um, George, when he was younger, he worked for a, uh, by about nine years old, uh, nine or maybe 12, something like that, kind of a middle school kid. Um, he worked at a, a bond, uh, not a bonding place before his dad did. He worked at a drugstore, and the, the drug uh, man, the guy who was the pharmacist, I guess, this is set in the 1929, so I mean, pharmacist is a very loose word, but um, he, uh, son died, he got a telegraph saying his son was dead, George read it, and uh, he was watching him put together a pharmaceutical recipe, a remedy for uh, a patient, and uh, he, yeah, so George, George witnesses this, he doesn't feel good about it, he looks at the sign and says, hey, you need to go always ask your dad, uh, I guess it's some 1920s uh, propaganda poster that says, hey, you know, honor code, whatever, uh, goes, to, goes to his father, dad says, hey, you know, whatever, that's where we're in, invited into Potter, and uh, Potter being just a, an old cantanker is just an asshole, essentially, um, you know, kind of tells, you know, hey, you ain't got no sense for, you know, Papa Bailey and all this other stuff, and, and uh, you know, some, there's some arguments there, we're introduced also to uh, uh, George's uncle, Bill, um, which is his dad's brother. And they started the, the building and loan together. Um, but, uh, you know, fast forward, that's where we meet Potter. And he sets up as a guy who wants to own everything. And, you know, it, it's it's a lot of storyline in there. But 
Um, anyway, the pharma, he goes back to, to the pharmacist and you know, tells the guy, hey, listen, man, you know, the stuff that you in there isn't, isn't really uh, what you think it is. It's poison. You're going to kill that kid. I saw you do it. And that dude just starts wailing the fuck on this kid. I mean, just starts beating the shit out of him because he, he is drunk, obviously. He's doing his job uh, incorrectly, but he listens to him. Uh, after he beats this shit, he kind of just walks on him. I, he got like eight good, eight, nine good hits on him. And George is just sitting there taking him. He's a 12-year-old kid. I mean, you know, and he's explaining, hey, I saw you do it. It's wrong. You're going to kill him. I, you know, you're, you're going to hurt him. You're going to hurt somebody really bad. And uh, just the innocence of that scene always gets to me emotionally because as an adult, you never listen to children. <laughs> and and there's a lot of different things. You know, there's, there's the idea that this guy has lost his son. The pharmacist lost his son. He's he's upset. He's distraught. He's crying. He's he feels um, he feels just hurt. It's it's an emotional day for him. And the fact that George was there to save not only the pharmacist from going to jail for twenty years or forty years or you know he also saved that other kid's life that the pharmacist was poisoned. Incidentally, you know, poisoned. And. Um, it, it just the scene ends that that part ends with you know the pharmacist just hugging George and telling him that he's sorry about doubting him and he's you know he and George is just explaining hey I know your son's dead I saw the telegraph I'm sorry you know about that but you're gonna kill this other kid and I'm just trying to look out for you and it's just such an honest moment um, it really is it's just such an honest moment it just kind of gets to me of it gets to me emotionally, and I never understood why. I think it's because of the grief that you would feel if you lost a child. And I have children, you know. It's, you know, would you make mistakes? And you need I mean, people will talk about guardian angels and stuff like that. And and there is a guardian angel, <laughs> adversely at the end, saving him. But in that instance, George is the person, a young child. George is the person who is acting as his guardian angel. He's looking out for him. He's saving his life and saving the life of somebody else. So it's it's poignant and it's such an early part in this in the movie that you really don't do really pick up on it. It's only through analysis that you sit there and say, well, George was looking out for her. not only is his office boss, uh, it was an empathetic way of doing it too. And it, it wasn't because, oh I saw you put poison, it was because listen, I understand you're going and you're hurting and that kind of empathy is something that he shows throughout the whole movie. He's cynical though, <laughs> and it's such a juxtaposition because you're a cynical guy. You're cynical about your life. You're cynical about the way the world works, but yet you have so much hope on the other side. You see the other side of I've got to oppose Potter, and I know it's not like drive necessarily. It's happenstance that his business opposes him, but it kind of gives him a little bit more moral uh, oomph because he really doesn't like Potter. Potter's a dick. And it, it really does play, but even early on as a 12, 13-year-old boy, you can see how George is empathetic, how much he loves his fellow human, how much he loves and gives to his community without even knowing that's what he's doing. And it, again, it, it emotionally hits me because I think that's an important lesson to, to learn at a smaller age. Um, it, the next scene, it moves into the next scene, which George is uh, an older man now. This is where Jimmy Stewart proper comes in um, as the, the antagonist. He's the, he's the main character. He's the person that we're going to follow all the way until his um, attempted suicide or, or until the conclusion of, of the of the, uh, of the movie. So um, He's an old guy. And he's, he's 
done with high school. He's, he's going on a trip. He's going. It's happening. And uh, and it's 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 his time. It's his time to fly. He's excited. You know, he's got this briefcase. Um, his old pharmacist uh, boss bought him a suitcase. Uh, I, I assume that this gentleman, this pharmacist, has been looking out for George his whole life ever since then. I can. I, it's it's implied. It's not really. Um, it's not really. Um, it's not really shown. But it is shown. It's it's subtle. The subtle ways that that man had influenced and, and just watched over George. At this point, he's buying him a graduation gift, and he's not even in the scene. But it's in play. Hey, my old boss, look at that. You know, it's a throwaway line, but you just know that that man has been guiding and watching George his whole life after that incident. So um, it's a nice nod. And then at the end, uh, in the conclusion, he's also uh, he also comes. Uh, he's also there. So. Anyway, so we keep going through it, and uh, he, he's ready to go. He's ready to leave, and uh, you know he has a, a scene with his mom. He has a scene with uh, you know his brother, who now Harry is an older man. So this is the introduction of old Harry, older Harry, not kid Harry anymore. He's a little brother, um, and you know he's got you know, Billy's still there, and his dad's there, and everybody's having conversations. You know they're, they're having a, a dance. Uh, they're having a dance at. Uh, thing, and I guess Barry and him are the same age, or whatever it was like. Anyhow, the timeline is a little vague, but he goes to this dance, he meets Mary, he starts really flirting with her and dancing, and in this, in this scene, it's, it's the ballroom scene, they're dancing, and, and they're actually on top of a uh, underground pool, and the, uh, <laughs> the, the gym opens up, the, the floor gym opens up, and they're dancing, and they're in the spot of the attention because they're dancing on the edge of rolling in the water. And uh, they realize everybody's looking at them and cheering them on and stuff. And they're like, oh, okay, I guess this is, you know, whatever. And, and they finally fall in. And they just create, like, a big scene. It's a, it's a bonding moment between him and Mary because it sets up their romantic relationship. It also sets up a lot of common ground. Now, George is still going to leave. George is ready to leave, you know, on the, on the next day. And um, he's ready to go. Well... That night, he's walking Mary home. They're having romantic relationships. Uh, they're not. They're flirting, and they're, you can obviously tell there's chemistry. There. And, uh, and it's it's nice. Mary is uh, is young. There's there's a lot of banter and a lot of play and romantic thing. Anyway, right during that interaction at the end, when they're about to to make a deal and, and, and really try to take their romantic relationship to the next level really shows up with Harry and, um, and you know, dad's had a stroke. His dad had a stroke. His dad's a claim to the stroke and died. So George Bailey now is, is the uh, person, uh, along with his son, Billy, who are, is kind of running the, you know, billboards and loans and stuff. And, you know, it's, it's, it's been three or four months now uh, since that incident happened and kind of semester started already, which is college, which is where he's going, and, um, you know, he's kind of just, kind of just there, <laughs> he's kind of just there, and it becomes a thing to where Potter's going to try to buy him out, Potter's like, hey, I'll buy him out, I'll give a shit, I'm going to liquidate this thing and own this town, 
daughter starts talking trash about George's dad, Papa Bailey. George gets pissy, makes a big speech. She, you know, leaves hard on his sleeve because he's empathetic. And uh, Potter's, him and Potter got bad blood. They start talking shit. Anyway, um, the board says, "Hey, we're not gonna, we're not gonna, we're not gonna run on Mr. Potter's actions. What we're gonna do is we'll keep this thing going as long as George is here to do it." So, pigeonhole George back. So his kid brother Harry ends up graduating, and he goes to college. Four years later, George is waiting on him. Hey, I've been I've been stuck doing this for four years. Uh, ironically, Mary was out of town for four years as well because she, I guess, graduated with Harry at the same time, and their friend Sam Wayne Wright, Mary was uh, seeing and dating. Uh, he ends up being a rich man in the story. Um, he's the thing that George thought he would be. So Sam is a foil to George because Sam Wayne Wayne <laughs> Wainwright is a guy who they they thought was going to. George thought he was going to be him. a tycoon, good in business, had a lot of ideas. He would be able to hit the ground running and, and, and really make himself be a, a millionaire. You know, very rich man, and it just never panned out. But he's a foil. He's a guy who looks up to it. And, uh, you know, Sam's just, you know, Sam's just a guy who, you know, he's just he's just a friend of George. He's just George's friend. He's, he's a rival. He's a tease. But, you know, later on, he wants to bring him in on the business, and George can't do it because he's got to stay in the thing. But he gives him he gives him all kinds of advice. He gives him ideas. And, you know, Sam adversely becomes very successful off of George's ideas and George's intuition and George's um, local, you know, local thing. And it's, again, he's a complete foil to George. Uh, his life is a complete foil to George's life. And, uh, you know, Mary understands that, too, because Mary was dating him. Anyway, so... George is waiting on his kid brother. His kid brother steps off with his wife, got married, and now it's just like, hey, you know, uh, I got a wife now, and she and her dad wants to bring me in at the business, and you know, I'm gonna I'm gonna go do that. But you know, hey, George, you've been holding the bag for four years. I never told her dad that I would do it. Uh, you know, I want I want to send you to college. So you know, I want to send you. So a couple. George starts asking about. George starts asking his new sister-in-law about um, kind of that job opportunity. You know, is Harry, is Harry going to be well off? You know, is Harry going to, you know, well, the, she goes, she says, well, he's not going to make much money, but he's going to have a very long career, and 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 it's exciting because it's it's something that I think he wants to do. So George already knows he's, he's going to stay at this point. George is like, my, my kid brother has is, is got a life and he's got you know and I, in some ways George took over as the head of the household like the actual father uh, and yeah his, him and his little brother are, are the same close to the same age but that parental piece that says I'm responsible for you because you're my younger brother is there and George understands it so he's he's going to put his brother's happiness his brother's wife and his, his brother's life in front of his own it's, it's again another selfish empathetic move and, and it's just, that's how George is. That's who he is. And um, you see it play out in different different ways throughout the course of his life. And this builds the idea that George is selfless, that George is a great person, that George is one of the richest men in the town, not because of how much he earns and how much wealth he has, because he doesn't have very much at the end. Um, it's, it's the personality. It's the piece that says he is um, wealthy 
and it's personal wealth in the sense of his friends, these people who love him, these people that holds on to him. He's got um, individuals who care and love for him the way that he cares and loves for everybody else. It's a mutual respect and a reciprocity that a community can give you, but not one individual can earn or gain from money. Um, so, uh, his mom advises him to go flirt with Mary. He does. And this is that part I was talking about earlier where he he, he, he gets frustrated because Sam is going to call Mary and Sam is, again, his rival. But Sam's having a great time in New York. He's he's blowing it up, man. He's got all kinds of ideas and he's doing great. He asked George, hey, George, you want to come over here to, to, to my area and I'll give you a job, man. I'll, I'll hook you up. And Mary's kind of um, talking with Sam, you know. Although in the scene, Sam's got a girl behind him, like, holding his hair and stroking him off. I think, obviously, the implication is that Sam's not faithful to Mary and that Mary understands that Sam's not really going to be a good suitor for her. And that's why she's, again, always been interested in George. Um, and George Bailey is just a guy who's caught up in his own ambition, not knowing how selfless he is. Um, because he, he definitely sees what he wants, but he doesn't see what's around him. Uh, and Mary's around him. So, um... There's a lot of romantic stuff going on. The phone call starts with, you know, they, they have a little fight. They have some awkward inter- interactions. And it comes to crescendo, and he's about to leave. And Sam calls, and she, you know, puts on a show to say, oh, well, you know, if you're not going to want me, I'm going to be with this guy and make you think that I do want it. And George is like, you know, kind of like, well, I mean, you, know, you do what you want, Mary. You know, whatever. Um, <laughs> it's kind of... It's, he's hurt, but he doesn't want to show that he's hurt, and he doesn't want to show he's interested because he, he, he just doesn't, it's not his thing. <laughs> Sam asks him, uh, he talks to Mary a little bit, and they ended up being really close, and that affection, that closeness is what actually solidifies them as, I think, we're right for each other. So, and uh, the scene is, the scene is funny, the scene is, you know, obviously really good, um, and it, and it, Crescendo's with George saying, hey, I want to do what I want to do. I don't want to, I don't want to see, it seems like at this point that his life has been planned for him. Or through happenstance, somebody else is dictating his life. And nobody else is doing it, you know. He needs to dictate his life. He needs to make decisions. He needs to be in charge of his own um, everything. And he feels like that's not. So in this speech that he's given to Mary, he's pretty much given his, his frustration to start to build on his life. He's, he's an owner of a business, but... He doesn't make any money. He's, he's never left his hometown because uh, there's always something there. There's a responsibility that he has to take care of, like his, like his not his son, but his, his, his brother or his dad's business or the community at large to offset Potter. You know, there's always something there that keeps him in that town, and it's frustrating for him personally. And um, it keeps building. It keeps building. It keeps building. And, and finally, you know, it, it crescendos with Mary a little bit. But Mary understands that. She understands him. She loves him, and they get married. The next scene is them getting married. The scene after that is their honeymoon, and the black market hits uh, Black Friday, um, the actual Black Friday, not Walmart. You know, every Thursday after Thanksgiving, or every Friday after Thanksgiving, the actual Black Friday when the markets closed. Again, this is during the Great Depression, and you know, it's that's when a lot of businesses and banks closed. And Potter bought the business, saying, "Hey, you know, he, he bought a lot of places during this time." solidified his grasp on the community, but he could not buy out, and he could not get uh, the shares from the bonds, building bonds. So, at this point, you know, Potter's really pissed. He's like, dude, I own everything but this guy. 
car to go on their honeymoon. They got like two or three thousand. They got four thousand dollars, I think, something like that. Two thousand, four thousand dollars. And the black market hits, and the community needs money. It's a, it's a rush. Everybody's trying to get their money out of the bank so they can have some some some, some, sentence, some security. So that way, it's you know X, Y, and Z. And Mary is the one who pulls out the money. It's, I've got money here. This is you know this is what I've got. Uh, that's community because it's a whole bunch of people in this place trying to get their money out because they're scared about the bank. You know about the bank's closing and they don't know how they're going to live and all this other stuff. And, um, they stay afloat by two dollars uh, of that, all of George's money and all of Mary's money. So at this point, she's just as selfless as him. She sacrifices and understands George just as much as him, but he doesn't realize it. He's still stuck in that selfish point of view. I love It's a Wonderful Life. This is one of my favorite movies. It is my favorite movie of all time. You know, as a sidebar to step out of this, um, I gotta wrap it up because I'm just telling the story as it is. But they stay afloat. The banks stay up. Mary got pregnant. Yeah, they have four kids by the end, by the close to the conclusion of the story. Now George is the same thing. They've grown business. He's got a lot of friends. He's got a lot of people that he's helped out. He's his community-oriented leader. He's a community-oriented guy who sees the value of those things and who, just like his dad, wants to help the community more than he wants to make money. You know, that's not his part. Even though George is money-consumed, it's an ethical line that he won't cross. He's not going to gouge. He's not going to do crazy shit. He's just going to stay the course. And he's going to help people out. He's going to make the money because he's a decent, honest, hard-working man. And it's the biggest piece of his character that really shines through. And again, he picked a wife, Mary, who is just as selfless as he is, who has sacrificed just as much as he is, but he doesn't even notice that. Not until he doesn't have her anymore in his life. Now, what ends up happening is a series of unfortunate events. George is still frustrated. He never left his hometown. He's still frustrated that it seems like this job and these things were given to him. It was just something that was dropped on his lap. And, and he had no say and no control. And it's true. To some extent, that's 100% right. At this point, his kid brother won the Congressional Medal of Honor. He's super proud. Because at some point, it's, it's, his, it's his kid brother. But he's almost like a dad to him, right? He gave up his life uh, by taking the business. Um, and Harry went off to go his own. Now, Potter was part of the draft board. He drafted, you know, he, And all of this stuff, you know, insufficient funds, and 
with all these things. He's he's a guy in charge of everything else, so he's going to use the resources to to try to take down the babies. And and George George is practical, and it starts off with the bank auditor coming in to audit audit their audit their accounts. And George is awesome because he's riding a high, and that's the thing. He's riding such a high that it's once he hits low, it's low. He's such a high, so he's so so happy about his brother. Uh, bank auditor comes in, Uncle Billy loses the money, and he's just like, oh shit. So he tr- retraces all the steps with Uncle Billy. Auditor solidifies that it's George that lost the money. So George, he's just like, ah, yeah, I got this, and. Um, gets frustrated. He gets upset with his uncle. Um, he's the owner of the business, so embezzling is a huge crime, especially post uh, so, you know, post uh, depression. Great depression. He tries to call Sam. He can't get any kind of message or anything like that to him. He tries to get his brother. His brother's broke because he just got back. But nobody has $8,000 that he knows He's the richest man they know. So he goes to Potter. He's begging Potter. Potter just takes him down a notch. He just, you know, he rips into him. This is what a Potter has always wanted. And ironically, he helped orchestrate what he's always wanted, which was George Bailey on his knees begging him for help. And he gloats. And he gloats, and he's a big asshole about it. And uh, the conclusion is that I'm just going to call a rest for you. I'm a, I'm a stakeholder. I feel like you've embezzled money and funds. and I'm not going to loan you any money because I got you right where I want you. Uh, you know, Do you have any equity that you can give me any money, any stocks, any bonds? And he goes, no, no, no. I've got a life insurance policy. How much is it worth? 15 grand. Hey, 15 grand. That's a good amount of money. It's enough to cover the, the balance. But um, how much equity do you have now? Like 500 bucks. $500? You want me to give you $8,000 for $500? which is what that's on surface what you get from me because you're worth more dead than you are alive and that's where that seed is planted that well George kills himself he dies then the family would have $15,000 and be set up that's set up which is financially better than where they are now so it's a short sighted look at it but in his experience in his life it never seems like he ever won in his opinion and that's why he's like, ah, I'll kill myself. So he goes home first. After talking with Potter, he's totally depressed. He's distraught. He goes straight home. And you know, his wife's like, hey, where's your coat? Where's your jacket? You know, what's going on? He's like, I left it at the office. I left it at the office. And she can obviously see that there's something wrong. Because most good wives know when their husbands are just, there's something off. And most good husbands know when something's off with their wives. Sorry. I mean, it's basic communication intuition or if you know somebody you really know them then you'll know but um george bailey comes in he starts shit with everybody in his family he's talking trash to his kids he's you know annoyed by their actions he's you know he's he's just you know, he kisses on his second oldest son he's crying thinking about his, his days thinking about his life he's thinking about all these things and becomes it crescendos emotionally because you see him upset, like just distraught, like he's a zombie. 
and then you see him sit down with his with his second oldest son, and the second oldest son's just sitting on him, and he's kissing on him, he's crying in his eyes, um, and then you know, he, then he gets annoyed because the daughter is playing a song over and over again, practicing, and then he lashes out with his anger, he lashes out with his emotions because his, his other daughter is sick upstairs and you know, I, at happenstance that her teacher from school calls and he just takes her down, he takes out his emotions on her, you know, you're a horrible teacher, who lets you do that, you know, who, who lets you, you know, let a kid go home out buckled up, you know, naked, walking through the snow and, you know, he's just talking shit, but those things create ripples too, oh, this whole, this whole movie is about ripple effects, so... <laughs> The wife's like, hey, what's going on? Like, what's, what's happening? And, um, and he doesn't want to say nothing. He doesn't want to say nothing. So he goes upstairs and talks to Zuzu, which is his daughter, who's sick, running temperature. And she gives him petals. And it's a very sweet. It's very sweet because he's having one of the worst days of his life. And at the same time, he still is trying to think of other people. He's still trying to put Zuzu in a good mood. You know, he's, he's helping her fix up her 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 uh, her, her uh, rose petals. The rose petals are falling off. He's gluing them back together, and you know, he's he's being a father. But there's so much more weight, and I think that's one of the most important things about parenting. It's one of the things that it gets emotional for me is because you're going through a, an emotional piece. You're you're going through you know that you're going through the struggle, and you still have to be. You still have to be a brother. You still have to be a son. You still have to be a husband or a wife. But in my case, I'm a husband. I mean, whatever. You know, it's 2020 you now. So, I mean, you can be a husband if you're a guy. I mean, you can be a husband if you're a girl. I don't know. Uh, <laughs> anyway, as a parent, you just sit there and say, you know, I've, I've got to be a good father. I've got to be a good parent to my child. But I'm having a horrible day. There's so much stress. There's so much things. I don't know if I'm going to be embezzled. I don't know if I'm going to jail. I don't know. I don't know. I mean, it's that's my responsibility. How did I lose this bunny? What and all that stuff's going through his head, but then it's a sidebar into a conversation with his daughter Zuzu. And it's like, it's, it becomes a thing. Like, okay. You just sit there and, and breathe it in while, you know, he's talking with, with Zuzu, and it's, it's like, okay. Downstairs, his wife asks him again, "What's going on?" He gets emotional. He's just—he starts kicking shit, destroying stuff. And there's, a, there's ironically, the bridge that he's going to jump off of. There's a model of that bridge um, on the table that he starts messing with and destroying, and all this good stuff. And he just—he just loses it. You know, he just—he just loses it. His family's looking at him like horrible. He's telling his daughter, hey, I need you to play that song, you know, because, you know, you're playing it already and, you know, yada, yada, yada. And it's, just, you know, you just feel like, man, this guy's good. He's, he's, he hit his limit. It's done. Like, he's emotionally uh, finished. Emotionally strong. And I know I felt like that a couple of times. And I know I take my, my emotions out like that occasionally. And, uh, you know, those things are good parallels. And those things happen. Uh, I think with everybody. That's why it's such a powerful scene because it literally sets up the suicide run. So he goes out drinking because, you know, his wife is just, I don't know. There's just, he's got to go. He's got to get out of there. I mean, his 
kids are driving crazy. He's so stressed out. So he goes to the bar and drinks. And one of the guys, one of his friends from high school, or one of his friends growing up, and, uh, and even the owner of the of the restaurant, the restaurant bar, you know, they're they're talking, and and he's drunk. He's completely blasted. He's trying to drink away his problems. He's trying to drink away a lot of the issues. And um, ironically, you know, the guy right beside him is like Bailey. He's like, yeah, this is George Bailey. George Bailey, huh? The husband of the teacher that he cussed out over the phone um, is there, and he punches him, just messes his ass up, and then he gets that guy gets kicked out of the bar. But George is like, ah, you know, I got to go then too. Forget this. Right, the ripple effects of him talking shit to a guy's wife. That guy's at the same bar as him. He gets hit in the face. You know, it's, I mean, George probably would have drank himself to sleep on the bar and then woke up the next day. And you know, it is what it is. You know, it, it would have been well had things played out. He would still been drunk, but um, so what ends up happening is uh, he tries to drive his car, crashes into a tree. He says, well, you know, this is what's going to happen. It's going to happen. So he, the tree leads right into the bridge, which he destroyed, a model bridge. But he leads to the actual bridge proper, and he jumps over. And uh, he's about to jump, and this is where the angel from the beginning of the story comes in and says, hey, you know, I'm Clarence. I'm the guy who's your guardian angel. And he tells him that after George jumps in to save Clarence's life, um, you know, because, again, George is a selfless man. George is a guy who's going to go and help a guy he doesn't know because it's the right thing to do. Rather than, um, you know, rather than just just not. <laughs> He's not going to watch a guy drown. Um, he was going to kill himself 100%. But he didn't because he saw somebody else was in danger. So he saved his life. And it's just, it's George Bailey, you know? That's, just, that's how he is. And, it, of course, the whole movie sets this up. So the angel explains, hey, I'm here to save your life. I'm here to show, you know, I'm here to help you. I'm here to, you know, guide you through your, your toughest time. And, you know, he doesn't believe him at all. So they have a little quick discussion. And, you know, George is like, you know, I, I wish I was never born. Like, I wish I was never here. So what proceeds is the angel um, chose him and he lives through the, the eyes of, of if he was never born. The ripples that his life made are never there, never affected. And um, it's, it's, it's the best part. Again, it's 20% of the movie because the other 70 to 80% of the movie is setting up the story, setting up this part, which is the most powerful. So, you know, things like the, the you know, the, the, the town is called some, but it's, the town is called Pottersville now, named after Potter. The, the guy who's been trying to take over the company. Well, uh, the over the store. Well, you know, guess what? Once Papa Bailey died, it was done. You know, his his brother went insane. So he's in the insane asylum, Uncle Billy. Um, you know, the, his mom runs a, a halfway house, like a, a boarding house, and she doesn't recognize George. Um, you know, his, his friends, uh, which is one of the cop and the taxi driver and the, the owner of the, of the bar that he was just at, all of them don't know who he is. And, you know, there's a part where he's at the bar trying to talk to people and nobody knows who he is because now he doesn't exist in this reality. And he sees his old boss, the pharmacist, who is just drunk, a shell of the man he used to be. You can tell he's intoxicated. You can tell that he is um, down. There's, there's, a, there's a reference of saying that he was in jail for 20 years due to killing a kid. Now, George wasn't there to save that kid's life. 
So he ruined two people. The two people's lives were changed, altered. You know, uh, his brother, his little brother's dead. He died at eight or eight or nine years old. Nobody saved him. Nobody saved him from the ice. He died. You know, so then all those people that he got the Medal of Honor for for saving, they all died too. You know, it's it's your effect, your life affects so many people and you never see it. And that's the beauty thing about it. I am, I am me personally, I'm a very selfish person. You know, I, I, I am not George Bailey by any means. Um, when it comes to the empathetic uh, part, you know, I, I don't go out of my ways to do certain things for certain people for occasionally I do, but it's just, I'm not, I don't have his capacity for love for human, um, uh, for the betterment of my fellow human. Um, he does, and it's an example that you live highly by, but adversely, he's so blind to how rich he is and how much he has it. So, you know, he doesn't have any kids, obviously. Mary became a librarian. She's an old maid. His mom doesn't recognize him. His brother's dead. His uncle's dead or in the insane asylum. Potter's taken over the place. The whole town is a shit show. It's all just bars and nude bars and, and, and girls. and I mean, it's just it becomes a place of um, immorality under Potter's watch. Um, obviously most of the important places are shut down now. Um, and and it, it shows the ripple effect of one man, one man's worth, you know, how much or how big does a ripple does one person make? And, you know, at the conclusion, he's gone through, you know, the next 25, 20 minutes of the show of, of Clarence showing him all these things that have gone, you know, George finally says, you know, this is it. I'm, I'm, you know, I, I need to go. Like I'm, I'm done, you know. And he he's running, he's running all over town. And the cop, Bert, shooting at him, uh, which is his friend. He's a friend cop, but uh, you know, adversely, uh, the way he transitions back into his reality is through you know Bert talking with him, calming him down. George, are you okay? He's like, you know who I am. Oh, you know, it, it's just it's a relief. It's. I had a life that I didn't respect or, or I had a life that I didn't appreciate. You've shown me a time and a place where I don't exist and how big and how much those relationships mean to me, you know, how much they, they're worth to me and they're worth everything because I would love to have the life where I'm being embezzled or whatever and I'm being arrested because my family, my wife, my love, my mom, my, my brother, they all mean so much to me and I never realized it, you know, and that's, that's, it's a wonderful life. Because it is a wonderful life. So the conclusion is, uh, the conclusion of the story is, you know, George comes back and he's so excited to see everybody. He even goes, Merry Christmas, you know, uh, I think, I think it's called Paradise Falls or Marble Falls or something falls. Um, yeah, Merry Christmas, everybody. He goes back to Potter's. Hey, Merry Christmas, Potter. Potter's like, oh, you're going to be arrested. They're waiting for you at home. You know, and it's, he shows up to his house. And by the way, Mary's not there, right? Mary's not there. And his kids and the kids are upstairs, like, because the kids come out here in a little bit. And there's like four guys in George Bailey's house waiting there. Now, I assume one of them is an officer, but it wasn't in uniform. So I don't know if that's like, Hey man, you left Mary. You know, I'm saying I like Mary. I love Mary. She's the best character in the show. But as a parenting decision, you left four kids, which are underage, um, with you know, and your doors wide open apparently because everybody just comes on in um, later on and even then. Anyway, anyway, rant over. But it's it's weird. It's a weird intro scene. 
four guys are waiting. One's the bill auditor or the bill collector. Uh, one's the auditor for the bank. The other one's like a judge or some kind of officer who's serving him a, a warrant for his arrest. And um, he goes, he runs upstairs and hugs his kids. First thing he does. And I, by, by this time, I'm already crying when I watch the movie. I, I am. I, I love this movie. I love the crescendo. I love the setup of it. It really explains every move. It really explains the duality between everything. So I love the idea of how it sets up. So he's there. He's talking. He's doing all this good shit. And, um, you know, he's kissing his kids. His Zuzu's petals. The ones that he thought he lost. You know, the ones that were not in his reality when he moved to the, the reality where he doesn't exist. Um, you know, his kids kissing on his head, hugging him and, you know, and then Mary shows up. So then he runs downstairs with all the kids on him and she, she kisses him and she, you know, she's excited because right after he left, she called uncle Billy and she got the explanation of what happened. So she's talked to everybody in the town that knows George. She's talked to everybody in the town that is friends of George and collectively the whole town comes up with the money. Not only that, Sam, Rain, Wayne Wright, um, calls him or sends a te- telegram from London saying, "Hey, his office is going to give him fifteen grand just to cover whatever he needs." Right. So the money is already covered. It, it is a sign. The money from the community is a gesture of their love and respect and admiration for him and who he is and how they've affected his life. He's the one who helped them get out of Potter slums. He's the one who helped, he befriends them. He's the one who, who tries to enrich their lives and make things better, right? He's that guy. And they respect him and they appreciate him enough to say, hey, we, we love you, George. Like, we really do. And it's not like, oh, we love you romantic. It's platonic, but it is an appreciation. It's a deep appreciation. And... It crescendos with the, the, the it's it's a charity gift, you know, of, of so much money to help him get by. It's an appreciation of him and his life. You know, the auditor gives a little money. The guy who was a bank auditor who seemed like he was a stiff gave him the money and is like, hey, here you go. Start singing Hark the Herald. You know, the daughter's been practicing the, <laughs> the, the, the on the piano when he got here. I mean, it's just, it becomes a party. His brother shows up midway through, everybody dumping money on their thing. You know, the, the guy at the martini bars was like, hey, we heard about what's going on with George, and, you know, we cleared out the jukebox, we cleared out everything. This is for you, George. You're my friend. You know, the, the, the pharmacist comes in with loads of money and says, hey, here you go, man, George, I got you. You saved my life when you were 12 years old. You saved my life, and now you're a 40-year-old man, and I'm going to save yours. I'm going to help try to save your life. It's those things. It's those things of he was a 12-year-old kid doing the right thing to save this man's life on his worst day. And it, you know, and I don't know why. It always connects. That's those two parts that I cry at is when the pharmacist at the beginning beats the shit out of him, but George still saves his life. Just, hey, man, you're going to kill that kid. And, 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 and the, that scene ends with that guy hugging him saying, okay, you know, it's, it's okay, thank you. And then at the end of the movie, he's one of the last people to put money in the jar. Like he's, it's like, it comes full circle and it's so subtle that it's like, this guy's been watching George's life the whole time. And and it's a guy who helps him. It's a wonderful life. I mean, it really is. And it's, 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 it's that thing of your 12 year old kid doing the right thing because you're honorable and earnest and, and, and you respect people and you respect 
uh, and you have a human, you have a, a love for humanity, you have a love for your, your fellow man, and then at the end, your fellow men love you just as much as you them. They show you that respect. And then, yes, it's money, it's monetary, but then that uh, George or um, Sam's office covers all the money. So the the money there on the table that everybody's pouring in, it's a gesture. It's a sign. It's not it's not a grand. I mean it could be, but it's it's not. Uh, anyway, it just I watch this movie every year. Every year. And I try to make it on New Year's Eve. I really do. It's a reminder of who you can be. It's a reminder of who you should be and it's a reminder of what you could be. If you make different decisions, better decisions, decisions that change your life. It's, it's so emotional at the end because it's just an appreciation. He's hugging his family, his brother's there. You know, the brother makes a toast to George Bailey, the richest man I know, the richest man in town, I think, um, or something very similar to that. And George really understands it. (laughs) Um, and it's true. He just feels like, man, my brother is so right. My brother, you know, it's like all these people that he has rippled effect, all these people, these lives that he's touched and changed and helped for the better. Um, the only individual, by the way, side, side B, because I'm about to go on this. It's been almost an hour, but the only individual that um, actually benefited <laughs> in this potential, um, in this potential uh, reality. The only individual that was actually hurt by going back to the old reality was Nick. Nick is the bartender at Martini's. Martini's is the owner, right? Nick is the bartender there. So I assume the bartender's, you know, he's a good guy. He does his thing. And he's probably not making a lot of money. And well, one of the first people that he runs into in the alternate reality is Nick. And Nick owns the bar. He says he's the owner. He's the person in charge. Now, I may have missed it. Maybe Martini and Nick or father and son and, you know, something like that. But I, I don't think so. Mr. Martini was like an Italian guy with a thick accent. And Nick sounds like a guy with like a Brooklyn accent. So it's, you know, they're two different guys from my opinion. But it seems like Nick's the only one that lost going back to the to the regular reality. I don't know why I point that out. But I just, I just want to point that out because he was the owner of the bar in the, in the new reality. He goes back to being just the bartender in the old reality. And yeah, he's a great friend. He's a good guy, but you know, I think he lost some money there. I think he lost a a better life in that reality. And I just always want to make sure I point that out because you know, it's, it's worth pointing out. I love it's a wonderful life. It's, it's my favorite movie. It's my all time favorite movie. I'll watch it every year until the day I die. And I hope my kids find the same kind of appreciation for that story that I do. And you know, even if they don't, maybe in a couple of years to listen to this and understand daddy's perspective on it, you know, because I don't make these podcasts for, I don't make the podcast for, for views or for listens or anything like that. I make the podcast just so in the event that I ever pass, die, unfortunately, Rachel, Ben, Thomas, they can understand what daddy's thinking. They can understand daddy's perspective as skewed as it may be or as as different as it may be or as wrong as it may be. I'm not saying I'm right, but to understand their father a little bit more, I I started doing these podcasts and I started roughly a year ago and I think I'll continue to do this because it's like a a vlog journal. I love this movie and every year it starts me off with, um, with a strong indication of the next year and, uh, and, and just a good cry 
to end 2019 and to start, you know, the next, you know, this one, 2019, but to start 2020, you know, and, uh, I, I love, I love it. I love the movie. I love the, the message. I love everything about the show. And, um, you know, it really is, it's a wonderful life. So, um, yeah, that's, that's my new year's Eve, uh, podcast. And I, I just, I, I took all the time to probably the next time we talk, we'll talk a little bit more about goals and things that we're going to do, uh, in 2020 and, uh, and then just take it from there. So, um, you know, Hey guys, I, I, I want to appreciate everybody from listening. This has been drive time and, uh, we'll catch you down the road. Thank you.